Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lee. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm doing really great. How are you? I'm good. We're in the middle of shooting a cookbook, and the recipe for this morning was uh, Prosecco poached pears. So I had a little extra Prosecco left over, so I had a little mimosa Mm. before we started. You know, I was thinking that I could really use a mimosa this morning because we're going to be talking about New Year's traditions. And to me, a mimosa just seems like a really big part of that. I agree. Well, can I tempt you with some short but really interesting facts about how New Year's Eve is celebrated around the world? I would love to hear that. Fabulous, because I have that for you. (laughs) (laughs) So So one big thing I've noticed when doing research about these traditions and talking to folks is that there are a lot of cultures in which pork factors as a major part of a New Year's Eve or New Year's Day meal. So fun fact number one, pork for progress. The reason why pork seems to be so popular for this reason is because pigs root by pushing their snouts forward rather than side to side or pecking backwards like chickens do. And so this tradition that hails largely from Germany and in Eastern Europe, although I've seen it elsewhere, pork is seen as a lucky animal because it roots forward and therefore eating pork imbibes you with their luck as well. Now, pork's often served with things like cabbage and sauerkraut, the strands of cabbage symbolizing a long life. Cabbage being green can also symbolize money. And then in Italy, pork is often served with lentils because the round legumes look like coins. Interesting. I didn't know that about pork. I always wondered what that was about pork and New Year's, but that makes sense. You know, me too, because pork also has a taboo factor in in the culinary world. And so because it eats filth and, you know, the perception is that well, it was a mud and it's an unclean animal. And so I do find this juxtaposition of it's a lucky animal, but it's also an unclean animal to be a really kind of curious, curious thing. And living in the Midwest, I had often heard about folks serving, you know, pork and sauerkraut on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day and never really caught on to why that was. So it was really fascinating to find out. Tradition number two is eating extra long noodles, typically rice noodles. And the idea is that you try to eat them without breaking them and that the length of the noodle implies a long life, prosperity. In Japan, families eat buckwheat soba noodles specifically to bid farewell to the passing year and then to greet the new year. Fun fact number three In Spain, and then ultimately also in Mexico, the new year is greeted by eating 12 grapes as a clock strikes midnight. The idea is that eating each grape will bring you luck for the next 12 months. Fun fact number four. In Greece, they smash pomegranates to scatter its seeds, and that echoes the abundance of life. So the idea is that you want to spread those pomegranate seeds far and wide. 
I don't know if those folks are as confused as I am about how to eat pomegranate seeds. Like, do you pop the whole thing in your mouth and spit out the seed or do you chew the seed? These are things that I lie awake wondering about. Fun fact number five, and this is pretty true of a lot of cultures, eating a whole fish, especially for Lunar New Year in Asian cultures, symbolizes prosperity, abundance, and a good year. And in Europe and Scandinavia, that fish typically is cod or herring or carp. Now this, I don't think they eat the whole fish, but I know serving cod, herring, and carp is a big deal Mm -hmm. at the New Year in Scandinavia. And then also pickled herring in Poland and Scandinavia as well. And in Iceland, rotten shark. Hmm. That's my kind of gross fun fact. Uh, Although that's not much fun fact about it. But yeah, rotten shark is a delicacy and I'm not mocking it. Do they actually call it rotten shark or does it have a different name? It it has a real, (laughs) real name to it. Yeah, no one's walking around like, here, have a bite of my rotten shark. I can't pronounce it though. It's like, oh yeah, Hakarl. H-A, but with an accent, Mm -hmm. K-A-R-L. Okay. Also referred to as fermented shark. That sounds a little bit better than rotten shark. Yeah, even though ultimately, yes. Hakarl, or fermented shark in English, is a national dish of Iceland consisting of a Greenland shark or other sleeper shark, which has been cured with a particular fermentation process hung to dry for four to five months, has a strong ammonia-rich smell and fishy taste. My folks actually had the opportunity to to sample it. My stepmother is Icelandic in origin. Her father immigrated to the U.S. from Iceland. And so they did a heritage trip to Iceland and got to try everything. It was pretty interesting. Apparently very hard to get to your mouth because <laughs> there's a lot, of, a lot of odor to it. Did she like it? I wouldn't say she she liked it. She grew up in the United States in Boston and adored her father, who was a, a career fisherman, a professional fisherman. Mm-hmm. So he was often away from the house for long periods of time. And so time with dad was very precious. He did pass away in the uh, late 70s. And so for her, the heritage trip was really important. Mm. She was able to go to the village from whence he came, met a lot of extended family that she really had not known growing up. And so participating in in some of these heritage rituals and recipes and things I know it was important for them to do that just to to if if somebody offered they accepted mm-hmm. yeah. to kind of honor yeah honor her dad and honor her dad's origins yeah that's cool fun fact number six ring-shaped cakes make an appearance at the year's end they're called vasilopita or king pie or basil pie and that's a greek new year's cake with a quarter that's inserted after baking, and the person who finds the quarter gets luck for the whole year. This sounds a lot like the king cake that is very popular in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. In France, that's called a gâteau or galette de roi. Mexico, rasca de reyes. In Bulgaria, banitsa. In Denmark and Norway, kranzakaga or wreath cake. And that's a concentric ring tower of marzipan cake that's served with wine or aquavit. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Have you had that? Yes. Can you tell me more about it? Oh, it's delicious. It's And it's so beautiful. It's almost too pretty to eat, but very mm. delicious. And I feel like actually that would be a fun thing to try to make at home too. Mm-hmm. So is it is it simple enough that it's it can be a home recipe or is it uh, yeah, something I, you would get from a bakery for sure? I think it's easy enough that you can make it at home. It's time consuming, but I think it's easy enough. Fun fact number seven. I completely thought of our conversation about bog butter with this as well. 
I believe it is New Year's Day that is known as Day of the Buttered Bread or the Buttered Sandwich. And in Ireland, you place buttered bread outside your door. And this symbolizes an absence of hunger in the house, which I loved. I do too. Number eight. In the Netherlands, you eat olebollen or olo cakes, which are donut-like fried dumplings spiked with currants topped with powdered sugar. Mm. And you can go walking along a farmer's market and finding all these vendors selling olo cooks. Uh, number nine, if you're counting along at home, we've got marzipanschwein or glückeschwein. Austrians and Germans drink a mulled wine punch and decorate the table with marzipan pigs which totally reminded me of our butter lamb. And now I want an entire (laughs) menagerie of butter lambs, marzipan pigs, and whatever other livestock that we can figure out. You could Um, do a butter cow. Yeah, I could do a carved butter cow. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm all about this right now. I I think that sounds amazing. (laughs) And then, of course, I can't miss a growing American tradition for New Year's Day, which is Hoppin' John. Hoppin' John is black-eyed peas cooked with greens and served sometimes with rice or with cornbread or with pork. And this spread throughout the U.S., specifically from the southern U.S. The thing that's kind of cool about Hoppin' John is that the the black-eyed peas represent pennies, the greens represent dollars, and then cornbread represents gold. So it's a way of eating your luck for the year. There are a lot of origin stories about why Black Eyed Peas and Hoppin' John was a big deal for New Year's Day. It's really hard to say definitively what that origin story is, but some of the stories that people tell is that it's a dish that basically originates from Africa when trade routes made legumes available throughout Europe and India. Of course, people brought it to the U.S. in the 1700s with the slave trade. There was a definite considerable bias against eating legumes for a long time because it was considered slave food but it ended up making a very large impression on American cuisine. There's a story that goes that the festive nature of Black Eyed Peas came specifically during emancipation on January 1st, 1863, but that is a historical note that's been very challenged. I also found it interesting to see that Black Eyed Peas, some sources say that that's served on Rosh Hashanah or Jewish New Year, so there, there does seem to be some element of peas or legumes being part of New Year's foods. The fact that the peas and the legumes were harvested during the fall and then preserved and then brought forward, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact why they're so important during New Year's. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for that. There's there's something about harvest foods that is so meaningful to us at the end of the year it is a way of giving thanks for surviving the year mm-hmm. behind you. There's there's this concept about eating your luck that I find really compelling. I had a hard time finding any kind of like scholarly information about this. So this is really just speculation. But we humans go through incredible lengths to get luck into our lives. We carry talismans. So you think of the lucky rabbit's foot or... There, there are things about finding your luck. If you find a four-leaf clover, you're lucky. If you find a lost penny, you're lucky. We have luck imbued in so many things and horseshoes and saint medallions. We invite luck. If we're at the casino, we, we invite lady luck by having an attractive woman blow on the dice. I mean, you name it. We've kind of, as a human race, we figured out how to get lucky. 
make our luck, find our luck, or just petition for luck to happen. But I do think it's really interesting. We also eat food to evoke luck. So it's this idea that if you eat these dishes in a certain way, I mean, I think of the Spanish grape tradition, right? To, to eat 12 grapes in 12 seconds as the clock strikes midnight and that you're going to have a lucky year. There, there's something about that that just really speaks to our deep-seated desire to control our lives <laughs> to the extent that we're willing to look for signs and symbols everywhere. You know, that we've got these beans that represent coins and we've got greens that represent dollars or we eat pork because pigs root forward. I just find it all really interesting. It was not something that I had really thought of before until I started thinking about New Year's foods, but it's really about hoping that you have the luck to be prosperous mm -hmm. and well-fed in the new year. Mm -hmm. I just find that really cool. It is very cool. And really what the whole celebration of New Year's is about going into a new year with a blank slate that has a foundation with prosperity and luck. So coming back to this idea of the bean and the harvest, I, I do think that the bean, although it has humble origins, but has now a massive influence, as I've said, in our cuisine, I do, I do think there's a reason why the bean because you can dry it, right? right. It's, like the, it's like the ultimate versatile food. Like you can dry them, you can bring them back to life. It's like the ultimate resurrection food. Ooh. And, and for a holiday that is tied into such a deep tradition of, and I'm not necessarily talking about Christianity, but such a deep tradition of death and rebirth. You know, one year dies and then the next one is born. We have this symbolism of mm -hmm. the old man representing the old year and the baby representing the new year. There probably is a lot of unspoken feeling about that. What are foods that we can resurrect the way that we can do with a with the humble bean? It's an interesting thought. Very interesting. Would you like me to tell you more about Hop and John then? Yeah. Okay, so Hop and John, as I've said before, is a dish that is modernly composed of black-eyed peas. Sometimes those peas are cooked with beans. Traditionally, it was cooked with rice and serve like that. And then sometimes, you know, it incorporates pork or cornbread as well. And, and again, this is about the peas representing coins and the greens representing money and the pork representing progress and, and luck and cornbread representing gold. It's a low country Southern traditional dish that's pretty much being eaten broadly throughout the U.S. on New Year's Day. And the idea is that you eat it to welcome luck and prosperity into new, your new year. Evidence of this dish, of, of the recipe, dates back to 1846, and Hop and John gained some widespread culinary attention when it was served at the 1895 Atlanta Exposition. Its connotation with New Year's Day is really modern, or at least as modern as 1907 can be considered modern. Mm -hmm. When a grocer advertised in the Charleston News and Courier that the season's first shipment of cow peas was available with the note, it isn't New Year's yet, but this old Southern dish is always hailed with delight. So at least by 1907, this shift had been made that Hop and John was to be served on New Year's as, as a traditional thing. So what's curious is that although the dish has African origins that are actually pretty clear, both with beans being brought to the New World, but also this dish, this element of cooking beans and rice together is also something of African origin. It pretty broadly was found at, t at both black and white tables in Charleston, South Carolina before the Civil War. Sarah Rutledge, who was the daughter of South Carolina Governor Edward Rutledge, included Hop and John recipes 
in her 1847 Carolina Housewife, which was a guide for genteel Southern ladies. Hmm. Basically, how to live, how to act, what to serve. So I find it really curious that this dish, even though it has these kind of humble origins, really made an impression all levels of society across the state. So the other modern twist on Hop and John is the idea that we eat this dish as black-eyed peas. And that's not always the case. Early dishes were actually made from pigeon peas or cow peas or field peas. And these are all beans that were commonly referenced as black-eyed peas. So the dish wasn't made with the legume that we today call black-eyed peas. These peas were grown as a rotation crop with Carolina gold rice, which was being moderately successfully grown in South Carolina until a 1911 hurricane basically destroyed that year's rice growing endeavors. So the idea was that you cook these field peas with Carolina gold Uh rice, and that was the dish. I get the impression that Carolina gold rice was a little bit particular, maybe a little bit tricky to grow. It was a little bit of a delicate grain. Rice production moved to Texas, and they basically stopped trying to grow rice in the South. It was just too swampy. It just mm. wasn't It just wasn't working. But no rice, no bean rotation. This bean that was being grown to kind of help replenish the land after growing rice, if you're not growing rice, you're not growing the beans. And so both components kind of fell out of favor. And then as Americans gained mobility, especially after World War II, and they came back and they were given money to build homes wherever they wanted, mm-hmm. people still made the dish, but they made it with whatever they could find. And so that was heavier beans that could really get shipped around the country, heavier rices. And so what seems to have been a very delicate dish over time became different. Bas- mm. Basically, people were cooking what they could find. And so what we think of as Hoppin' John today is really not what was being served back in the 1800s. There is good news, though. (laughs) There's a lot of interest in rediscovering heirloom plants. And this is something that's, I think, really super modern, as in within the last 20, 30 years. Because of that interest in heirloom plants and therefore interest in heirloom recipes, we're starting to see a comeback Mm -hmm. in a lot of fruits, vegetables, agricultural products that we really haven't seen for a long time. In 1986, Richard Schultz, who is a Savannah ophthalmologist, planted a crop of Carolina gold rice at his Turnbridge plantation using seeds propagated from a few grains of Carolina gold that had been held in a USDA seed bank since 1927. Wow. Yeah. And then on the back of that success with that crop, there's a foundation called the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, and that group produces a supply that is sufficient to supply southern chefs and restaurants with this heirloom type of rice. And because of that, there's now other efforts to bring back other things like pigeon peas, heirloom peas and beans. So it's entirely possible that now or soon we'll be able to kind of experience this Hop and John dish uh, the way that it was originally made. But in the meantime, you can get your New Year's Day luck on by eating black-eyed peas. Just know that they're not the same. But it's just, again, it comes back to that, even on a broader scale, this idea of this resurrection that these, you know, we were eating this dish, our our great, great, great grandparents were eating pigeon peas and Carolina gold rice as their hop and john. And that stopped for various reasons. I mean, this happens 
in the culinary world quite a bit, right? Yeah. But it never really went away. So even though they stopped growing Carolina gold to the extent that they were, and then they stopped growing field peas to the extent that they, they did, you know, in favor of hardier things that were easier to ship, it still came back. Yeah. It still is able to be resurrected. And it's thanks to things like seed banks and folks that are interested in reviving heirloom plants and techniques and, and recipes that we get. These things are never really truly lost right. to us. Yeah, that's not a dish that we ever, ever had. My brother's birthday is on January 1st. So, um, wow. yeah. So it was more Scandinavian types of things and birthday cake. Yeah, I have to admit, even though my family lived in the South for a short time, it's not a dish that I remember eating either. We have a little New Year's Day tradition in my family. That with my folks being South African immigrants you know, and curry being a big part of our family culinary legacy, for years, my dad and I would cook curry together on New Year's Day. And so I wanted to honor, of course, my family. But I was thinking, how can I incorporate this very Southern, this very American thing into my curry life? And so I was thinking I would make a pork vindaloo mm. and do a, a, a pulao, which is basically stewed beans and, and rice and, and do some curried greens so that I have all those components together. I think what I really love about this dish, Hop and John, is getting a renaissance as far as its heirloom ingredients becoming more available again. But I do love the fact that for all these years, that dish has survived. Mm. It, it's just been modified. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's been adapted. And that's what humans are. And that's what humans do. Right. And that whether you're black or you're white or you are descended from African slaves or you're descended from European slaveholders, specifically in context of this dish and the, and the South, you know, and the time it kind of saw its rise in, in low country cooking, that there was a sort of universality about it, but that people continued to embrace it and that it was important to them. It remained important all these years. Right. I've heard that it's actually not that great. Like I've heard, oh, it's mushy peas. Why are we eating this again? Oh, we're eating because we're supposed to be eating it for, for luck. So even though something that was maybe not really loved, it, it endured. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to our people, all of us, mm. you know, we endure. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a nice thought. Yeah. Especially after the crazy year, I think all of us have been experiencing. Indeed. So the other tradition that I remember reading about is the tradition of first footing. And this is something that I thought was really cool. And it's kind of related to custom of paying a New Year's call on the first day of the year. The idea was that you would call upon your neighbor throughout the day as a brief social call. And it was meant to help renew or repair friendships. Do you know anything about the origin of first footing? Well, I do. It actually has its origins in a Scottish holiday called Hogmanay. And... The Scots take this holiday very seriously. It's actually a three-day holiday, and they have a bank holiday, which the rest of Europe does not observe, mm -hmm. and it involves a whole ton of merriment. And to understand why this holiday is so important to the Scots, you have to know that Christmas was actually banned in Scotland for 400 years. 400 years? 400 years. Well, I had no idea. Yep. So during the Reformation in the 16th century, Christmas was viewed by the Protestants as a Catholic festival. And 
They, the Protestants, said that there was no biblical justification for the holiday. And there are still, to this day, is debate in some churches about the validity of the Christmas celebration. So you substitute it with Hogmanay, which was celebrated during this time, and then it becomes the big national holiday. The origins of the word Hogmanay, like so many words, has so many stories. There are a couple that sounded promising to me. The first one, that it was a corruption of a Greek phrase for holy month, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And then there was another one that it was from a French word, and I couldn't find anywhere how to pronounce this word. It's spelled H-O-G-I-N-A-N-E, and it means a gala day. Hmm, There's also okay. another story that it could have come from an Anglo-Saxon word, Holleg Monoth, which means holy month. And then there's another one that it could possibly have had a Scandinavian influence, Hoganat, which means Yule. And I personally like the Scandinavian origin story because I'm Scandinavian. And yeah. because it makes the tradition of first footing make a little bit more sense. So first footing, as you mentioned, was visiting is visiting homes and it's got to be somebody other than the people that live in that home. And it is the first person who steps across the threshold. And it starts actually at the strike of midnight. So first footers will generally arrive at your home after the stro stroke of midnight. And the first footer is most lucky, speaking of luck, if it's right. a tall, dark-haired man. And this is likely because if there was a tall, blonde, or light-haired man knocking on your door, it probably was a Viking and things were going to become very oh, no. unlucky for you. <laughs> oh, that is, I've never heard the thing about that, yeah. you know, that the, the blonde man would be a Viking. Yes. That's that's a really and that's a very valid twist right? on that for sure, especially <laughs> in Scotland. Yes. Yes. It's yeah. And the first footer would generally bring gifts when they came into your home. Again, that prosperity and that luck. And those gifts traditionally were salt, coal, shortbread, whiskey and black bun. Salt was and still is a very, very important component in civilization. And we have to do a separate podcast episode oh, on yeah. salt because it is absolutely fascinating. Um, I mean, yeah. even the, the phrase, you're worth your weight in salt, mm -hmm. comes from the fact of how important salt is. It was used to preserve foods. It was used as a currency in some cases. Mm-hmm. So salt was very important. Coal, obviously, to warm the home. Shortbread, which is a very Scottish dish. Mm -hmm. Whiskey, you know. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Water of life. Water of life. <laughs> and black bun. And black bun is really an interesting dish. It isn't actually a bun. It's more of a loaf that's baked in a pastry and it's very rich. It's oh. currants and raisins and whiskey and it's very, very dense. And very so not blood, 
not blood related. No, like not black pudding. No, not blood oh, related good. at all. Yeah, I'm no. so relieved. The the queen of gross facts is so relieved yeah. that this is not a blood related. <laughs> it is definitely thing. not okay, blood good. related. Kind of like a plum pudding a bit, oh, okay. but it's encased okay. in a pastry. Oh, yummy. Yeah. Shortbread, again, very Scottish. Yes. What I love about shortbread is that it's three ingredients. And the recipe is one part sugar, two parts butter, and three parts flour. So it was a very, very easy recipe to recreate and remember. Yeah. And it does have a huge custom of being eaten on New Year's. Its origins are probably related to pagan Yule cakes, which symbolize the sun. And again, we're dealing with the winter time, especially in the Northern Hemisphere. So mm-hmm. that symbolization of the sun returning to us. Again, it's kind of like that resurrection. We're coming out of the dark and we're going into the light. Mm-hmm. It goes back to our butter episode, which butter plays such a huge part in this. And it was a luxury item. It wasn't something that was eaten throughout the year. It was really made and consumed during the holidays, Christmas and and New Year's. You had said earlier that your family made a lot of Scandinavian dishes, especially during the holidays. What can you tell me more about that? What was that like? Yeah. So there were a couple of dishes that we have always had. And one of them was lefsa. It's kind of like a potato tortilla. It's potato and cream and flour. And it's rolled out very, very thin. It's grilled on both sides. And when you eat it, it's so good. It's so delicious. You put <laughs> butter and sugar and some people put cinnamon on it, and then you roll it up. I actually shipped some lefsa to my dad for Christmas this year. Oh, Yeah. And he was very excited. He texted me back, and he said he got the lefsa. Now it can be Christmas. All he needs now is his pickled herring, which you <laughs> mentioned earlier. <laughs> but yeah, so there's some debate about whether it should be served warm or cold. I prefer cold because I like my butter not to melt into it because I like the Mm. butter to create this nice layer and then the sugar crystals on top. And Mm -hmm. when you roll it up, you get that crunchy, creamy. But my mom prefers hers warm. So the butter melts into the lefse Mm -hmm. and then she puts cinnamon and sugar on it. I don't care for the cinnamon part but yeah when my grandma was alive she would make lutefisk and oh wow yes so and my mother would not allow lutefisk into the house it's <laughs> she did it, it it's much like fermented shark it's got a very distinct odor I don't I, the processes are very different but it's preserved with lye so it has a very oh, wow. odd but it's served with butter And I think that's the saving grace is the dipping it in the melted butter. I have not myself had neither lefse nor lutefisk, although I know that it's extraordinarily popular. Those were mostly Christmas traditions, but the lefse did carry over in the morning on New Year's Day to celebrate my brother's birthday. So we had lefse. We'd save enough Mm. of the lefse for Christmas to have lefse on New Year's Day. And then my girlfriend's grandma, Grandma Pete, would make a fruit soup. 
and it's my brother's absolute favorite. So we have that both for Christmas Day breakfast and New Year's Day breakfast. It's tapioca and orange juice and mandarin oranges and strawberries. So again, it evokes this sunny, summery, this we're coming out of the dark. Yeah. So how about you? So I've already spilled the beans on what I'm planning on doing for my New Year's Day feast, pork vindaloo. And I found a black eyed peas and mushrooms recipe made with Indian spices. Mm. So I thought I would take that on. My version of Hop and John and some basmati rice. I haven't found my greens dish yet, but I'm excited about it. That sounds delicious. I think I'm going to stick traditional. I think I'll stick with lefse and Grandma Pete's fruit soup and um yeah and a mimosa or two right yeah (laughs) speaking of which i think i'm gonna go i'm gonna go have a grapefruit juice mimosa that sounds really good right now it does sound delicious i know i have a little bit more prosecco over there but before we go what can our listeners expect for our next episode Oh, our next episode's going to be wonderful because we are going back into the kitchen with Marcy Thompson, and she is going to share with us her family's traditional baklava recipe. What I found really fun about talking to Marcy was that her family composition is a little unusual. She is an African-American adoptee into a Greek-American family. Her father taught her how to make baklava the way that his mother taught him. And Marcy has a lot of wonderful stories to share about that experience. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing. We'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.